0: Welcome to the Positive Turbulence Podcast, Stories from the Periphery, where we journey to the edge to talk to Turbulators about their experiences creating positive change.
1: Imagine the love child, Malcolm X and Harriet Tubman. Now give that child, Brene Brown, the power of vulnerability, and Simon Sinek, start with why, as much loved and deeply influencing uncle and aunt. Now you begin to have a picture of William Anderson. William is brilliant, and had he chosen to, could have done anything but he found his calling in teaching history in high school. And in that place, he's found the space to fearlessly bring courage and love into his classroom. He's also finding ways to take innovative approaches to how we use data to support students' definition of success. I'm Karen Zadinga, your co-host for the Positive Turbulence podcast. And today, we're standing in love with teaching.
0: I'm Rob Brodnick. In this episode, you'll get to meet William Anderson, high school history teacher, Turbulator, and an optimistic, pessimistic realist. The Positive Turbulence Podcast is a manifestation of AMI, a deep innovation learning community that is celebrating 40 years of supporting innovation and creativity for organizations and individuals. Learn more at aminnovation.org. Also, would like to thank MAC Avenue Music Group as a contributing sponsor. To hear our theme and other great music, visit MacAvenue.com.
1: The school system it just seems to us to be about as anti-positive turbulence as you can imagine.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would agree 110%. Education is so interesting because their whole like shtick is like wanting to prepare people for the future. Mm-hmm. But as an institution, the institution of education isn't at all changing or innovating along with the students that they look to hope to change and innovate. It's still tied to the like 1899 horseman factory ideal of what school is. The whole kids going to school in batches and like grouping kids rather Mm -hmm. than by development and skill by age and still Mm -hmm. having bells in the classroom, still having like all this old stuff, trying to get kids ready for a world that is vastly different from 1890. Right, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, the factory or the farm. That's yeah. basically the school's designed to send people to one of those two places.
2: Yeah, and now they're really sending them to absolutely neither one of those places. Yeah. So why? And
1: are they really sending, the I mean, are, are schools really preparing students for anything in terms of what we're sending them to? Do they arrive in post-secondary, whatever post-secondary thing they're doing, whether it be trades or university or going straight to work? Are they ready?
2: Yeah, I don't know. And I I mean, I think it's it's an interesting thing that students leave high school, some students leave high school, and they can do calculus. And like if a ship in the Atlantic hits a rock and starts spilling oil out at this speed, they can tell you how much water is going to get covered and how deep it's going to go. But they don't know how to manage their emotions is like a total missing factor of education. Like our students can do academics, but are they socially and emotionally ready to be adults in the world? Mm -hmm. Schools do a terrible job of preparing students to be human beings before they prepare them to be anything else. So what would you change? That's a long list. How much tape <laughs> is that?
1: We got all the time in the world, but, but like, <laughs> let's think that, you know, the top thing, right? The top one, top two, maybe top three things. What think, thread do you pull on first?
2: I can think of a structural one and then maybe a cultural one. Mm-hmm. Structurally, I think that we do ourselves a disservice that the way that we certify teachers is like you can either teach elementary school or you can teach secondary. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have so many students that are in secondary school that still need elementary skills, but they don't have access to teachers who know how to teach in that way, Mm -hmm. I think is a huge disservice. So like, if it's me and I have a high school student who has a fourth grade education, me trying to teach them literacy is absolutely positively not the best thing for them. I don't know how to teach literacy. I wasn't trained professionally in that science or in that art. Mm-hmm. But a fourth grade or fifth grade teacher can't come to a high school and instruct students who are on a fourth or fifth grade level because they're a early an elementary school teacher. Right. And then vice versa. We have students who are in elementary school or who are in middle school who are ready to do high school and college work, why shouldn't they be able to do it? If you are eight years old and you can do calculus, you should be eight years old doing calculus. You shouldn't be stuck doing your times tables just because they say at eight years old that's the that's what you're supposed to do. So structurally, I think dropping some of those barriers for students and for educators and being able to provide the type of education that students really need based on their academic ability i Mm -hmm. think is huge would be the structural change culturally i would say we have to really start to care more about kids i think we i think education talks a good game but really doesn't pony up to really being interested in the best well-being of students
1: Mm -hmm. so i guess both of those things How do you change the system so that we can make those kind of structural changes? How do you, you know, give the eight-year-old the opportunity to do calculus and still be an eight-year-old? And how do you, you know, allow that 14, 15-year-old who maybe just can't read yet
2: Um, to read
1: without feeling shame and pressure? I think
2: that the answer to that really hits on both the structural and cultural piece. This idea that there is shame around the fact that students that you might be 14 or 15 and still reading at a fourth grade or fifth grade level, Mm -hmm. there should be no shame on a child for that. That's not the child's fault necessarily. That's more a failure of the education that they've gotten up to that point that hasn't provided them with the skills that they need to be able to read. So the shame shouldn't be on the child. The shame should be on the school. So in the way that we support our students socially and emotionally, I think, could really deal better with that. And if the structure wasn't so rigid that it was because you're this age or this grade, the shame I don't think would carry with it. It would be more about what skills do you have. Structurally, I think that's a super easy fix. Like let elementary school teachers teach in high school. And when kids need reading intervention, let them get reading intervention that's at the grade level that they need to be able to get it. And just Mm -hmm. by having an elementary school language arts person in a high school building to teach reading intervention solve that problem. And that's super easy. That's not even like a difficult thing to do. We have reading interventionists at our school who are just secondary teachers. So Mm -hmm. they're teaching students skills that are still just right outside their reach. So really getting them the developmental reading and literacy skills that they need is just its just missing it by mm-hmm. some arbitrary hoop that we've created an education that doesn't necessarily need to be there. Like, I don't understand why a teaching license can't be for K through 12. Yeah. If that's what you want or why an elementary school teacher can't be brought into a high school to provide a mm-hmm. service for students that we know that's where it is like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's as easy to open the space on the books yeah I,
0: I couldn't imagine karen in the situation you describe where there's 26 students across eight grade levels and you know my background in education and having spent time in the classroom it's a totally different world to be a teacher in that kind of situation you have to have you know so much awareness about yeah. each individual and their abilities and really create a social learning dynamic where seventh grade level are helping the third grade level. So you you would almost have like a community of education rather than a classroom with a teacher and a student. Mm -hmm. It would almost be like real life. Imagine that. Imagine that.
2: Imagine (laughs) school being in a place where you like go to the different people who you know, provide the service that you need for you to be able to make the steps that you need to Education is just in a very interesting place. I think it's at like the top of that roller coaster hill, and how it goes down and survives and down, not as necessarily as in education is going to crash and burn, but like it's time for it to really start to pony up, put the seatbelt on, and, and get ready for the ride of change.
0: As a large system, sort of structural component, I mean, we've got yeah. f- federal government, state government, the local all of these kinds of things, you have national standards, similarity across the country. It's going to be a challenge to change things at that level. And so I'm wondering if it's going to need to come from different kinds of places, whether it's competition out there. And we know the cost of education is difficult, but maybe there's some kind of rebellion that occurs within the teacher cohort and teachers start to own things a little more. I don't know. I'm just wondering we're talking here today about positive turbulence. How do we turbulate that system? What are some ways to create some, some change that, that makes things better?
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I also think, not to be too pessimistic or cynical, that part of the reason why we've had these attacks over the years on teachers and on the profession of teaching is because of that simple truth that I think teachers are going to be part of the main engine that start to shift education because they're the ones responsible for doing the work. They're the ones responsible for the outcomes or the responsibilities being put on them for the outcome. So with that being the case, I think this is part of the reason why we're moving away from giving teachers the power that they have by making things more, whether you pass this test or not, or you can just go online and learn these things or, Anybody can be a teacher. It takes six weeks over a summer for you to be able to learn how to do these things. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma a couple of years ago and their teacher shortage was something around 1,200 to 1,500 teachers. Wow! And their solution to that problem wasn't to re-examine the pay structure for teachers, wasn't to re-examine the responsibility of teachers their solution to that problem was oh we need math teachers go find an accountant and put an accountant in a classroom and let an accountant teach it because they know math and what they were learning was those accountants would get to the classroom and have no clue how to teach a class because they're accountants <laughs> they're not teachers and you know kids were running those those these volunteers are not volunteers they were paid They're running these people out of the building two, three weeks in, a month in, because they don't have the pedagogy to be able to do the work. I don't know. I think education is in this very, very interesting place. I do definitely think teachers are going to be on the forefront. I think communities are going to have to step up, too, and really start demanding more. I think one of the interesting things about education, too, is that it's one of the few professions where the peanut gallery really rules the profession yeah like we as a person who has always gotten their trash picked up i don't get to tell sanitation people how to do sanitation even though i've always had a garbage man i've always had garbage i know i don't want it i essentially have a pretty good depth of knowledge on sanitation but i don't get to tell sanitation what to do i don't get to tell lawyers what to do i don't get to tell doctors what to do as often as i've been to the doctor's as much access as I had the web in these. But because people have all been to school, at least K through 12, relatively, they get to have this voice and such a huge impact on what happens in education. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's definitely not for the best.
1: But what do you do, William? Like, so you're in an ecosystem that is just fraught with negative turbulence right now, coming from all sides, the system, the parents, the government, like... Wow, like so much pressure. A, how do you personally stay positive? And how do you, how do you start to change? Like what kind of things can you do to bring a little positive turbulence into your world, to innovate a little bit even in the classroom? What kind of, what kind of opportunity is there for you?
2: I think there's a lot. I answer myself a pessimistic, optimistic, realist. So I'm always going to think of like the worst case possible scenario for most things. I'm also going to think of like the utopia scenario, but then I'm going to try to ground myself into some reality. And I think for me in education, the reality, the best part of it is the fact that we get to work with kids and that it is a long game and that if I can work in places and spaces as small of a contribution as it may be, If I can get students to think about themselves, to think about the world, to think about these systems, structures, different problems and different successes that are happening in their community, in their state, in their country, in their world, and get them to leave and contribute in a different and radical way, slowly but surely that positive turbulence starts to make its way out. I think also just things like this podcast and stuff that you guys are doing that in the information age, it's a lot harder to be able to not show the positive impact that changes of thoughts can have. So Mm -hmm. being a part of things like that and being willing to challenge and say that things could and should be differently. I think for me, is a way that I definitely try to stay positive and just, I remember not liking data very much, and like I used to hate, like, oh my god, you guys want data, 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 data. Like, I thought very much what I did was just so qualitative that crunching numbers like took away from a lot of the work that I did. But then I remember being asked to teach things a very particular way, and not wanting to do that, and thinking I might know a way that better addresses the need and the want that the people above me wanted. And then I started using data to show that these different ways of doing things could be just as successful or even more successful. So I think that's going to be the other, that's another sense of positivity for me. And I think another place for positive turbulence is that when we start to use the same data that people like to hate on, students with lower SATs or ACTs, students with lower GPAs, When we can show those students being able to go to college, to go to work and still be successful, and sometimes being even more successful than students who have the higher GPAs, who have higher test scores, and it's because we did this particular thing with those students, Mm -hmm. then it's like, oh, maybe we don't have to keep doing things the way we always have. Maybe we can see success and it looked differently in different kids and and that's okay rather than having these kind of like very cookie cutter ideas of what education should and could look like. So those are some of the spaces.
1: An AMI meeting is not just your average collection of speakers around a theme. It's an end-to-end curated experience. It's a thoughtful, connected, influential community. It's peer learning in a super creative environment. Learn more at aminnovation.org. I got really interested in the using data example and you gave us a little bit showing how You know, maybe kids who don't have a high GPA or high test scores actually can be successful later on. But for the student in the middle of it, facing all the pressure, that's not so great for them at that moment. Do you have any examples where you're able to use data more in the moment?
2: For those students who struggle like that, all right, so I I can think of a student, I can think of students. So the adults around them, we've set this bar and it's like, yo, you need to get a 3.5 GPA. You need to score a 1300 on your SAT. And then you can go to these schools and you can have these successes. Yeah. Woo-key, 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 woo. And then I'm a kid who I'm like, well, man, I have a 2.7 GPA. I got a 16 on my ACT. I'm not going to be able to go to those fancy schools. I guess I should just give up it. And it's like, whoa, man, let's change what success looks like for you. Let me bring you data of what it looks like to be successful in other ways. Like, let me show you these people who went to college on a 17 ACT who went on to do these crazy things. Let's bring in people to talk to you who started their post-secondary careers at community colleges and then went to university and then went to go do something else let's bring in this dude. I remember I had a student whose dad came to this country with a third grade education and owns one of the largest concrete companies in the state of Colorado now. And it's like, we need to put this man in front of students because that's data. That's like proof in pudding. Look at this person. The same way that we want to point to all the kids who go to see you or all the kids who go to Berkeley or like, yeah, those, those kids are successful. I don't, I don't want to take anything away from them and what they go on to do, but this guy's successful too. And you should be able to hear his story and understand that Joe, just because you might start off at a community college, just because you might want to start off and work just because your success looks different. Doesn't mean that you're unsuccessful. You shouldn't feel that shame we were talking about before. You shouldn't feel this this sense of letting yourself or letting others in the world around you down because you couldn't follow this kind of mystical ideal to elevate yourself into success. That like this road has so many different side streets to it that can get you to where you want. I mean I think that data is hyper important too. I think it's really important and you know we
0: can, we can take our averages and look at see how the average group does over an average period of time and you know with average outcomes and all those kind of things and and the data suggest certain kinds of patterns but learning is a really different kind of thing. I think learning is important to innovation, it's important to self-growth, important to happiness, so many different kinds of things. So let me let me set something up for you. I teach a course on innovation. And one of the things I do in the opening session is, is I ask, and I won't even call them my students, we're co-learners in a sense, but I say, Let, let's talk about profound learning and the times in your life when something really happened and, and you emerged from this as a different person. And you know, there's lots of definitions of what learning is. Learning is change. It's being different. And so I say, tell me what are the characteristics of the situation? You know, what was going on and words come up and there's a pattern. And I've done this for over a decade and and it it repeats. But things like fear, uncertainty, difficult situations, all these really negative kind of terms pop up when people talk about their most profound learning. And I, at the end of the conversation, come back and say, okay, now if I were to tell you you're going to come to this learning experience And we're going to focus on you being afraid, being unsure of yourself, not knowing what to do. And all of these things that make this profound learning experience, people wouldn't do it. They wouldn't sign up for the course. They wouldn't pay for it. They would stay away from that. So there's some kind of paradox about what true learning is. There's some kind of irony in all of this. And if you, if a teacher were to tell some learning expert that's studying learning, say, yeah, my classroom, I try to, you know, make people afraid. And I try to get them out of their comfort zone and do all these things. And, and really, you know, that's where some of the magic does come from. It's been cooked out of our system. We're not allowed to do that, right? And so how do you struggle with that kind of paradox in our world? And so that's one of the question. Part two is, how do you bring turbulence to that to try to create something special for a single learner
2: as opposed to a whole class? I think that's a great question, great two questions. And I love that you start your class off asking that question because it makes a beautiful point that for most of us, learning happens in that uncomfortable space, in that place where there was so much uncertainty and then you were able to discover that you were able. I think for my classroom, the way that we do that is through deep self-reflection. So this last semester, I actually got to pilot a senior seminar course. And the senior seminar course was rooted in mastering literary standards through writing and rewriting three main papers. One paper, which was a like a book review, on Mark Manson's Subtle Art of Not Giving an F, which was all about Organizing your life and thinking about the things that you do and do not want to care about the why. Then students having to write an autobiography, a detailed autobiography that forced them to really reflect on their different stages of life and the three main events that they think impacted them the most and why. And then the final paper that was, let's action plan for the future based on these first two papers. And what it ended up being was a bunch of juniors and seniors, mostly seniors, actually only one junior who, who made it into the senior class, a bunch of seniors writing these anywhere between 15 to 25 page papers that was just drenched in their self-reflection and the decisions that they made and why they did the things that they did and what they learned from it and how we could tie those things to other readings that we were doing that were tied to different critical social theories and students being so mad at me for forcing them to like have to interact with their older self and to like having to dive into why they made the decisions that they made, having them dive into like a really painful moment that happened when they were eight years old and like articulate in written word what that did to you and how it impacts you now. And what is it going to mean for your future? And like having students just like live that for 18 weeks and then produce something out of it, I think was the positive turbulence that a lot of them needed. And by the time we were done, they hated me for about 18 weeks relatively. (laughs) But kids were turning in papers like, Mr. Like, I'm handing you this and like taking weight off of my shoulders that I've been carrying for so long. I'm giving you like other kids being like, man, like I feel so much better thinking about what my life is going to be after high school. Like you were asking us questions that I really didn't have answers to. Like I knew I wanted to go to college. I didn't know why people have been telling me to go for the last 12 years of my life. So I just figured I'd go. Now I like actually think I know a reason why. So like to your point of, getting kids to be innovative, to getting people to to feel that positive turbulence, I think forcing them to reflect and to be better, critical analysts of themselves and of the world around them, I think is just key to that.
1: What an extraordinary gift for those students, right? To work through all that. Like most of us carry on with all that crap from our early lives, Hardly anyone gets through their early lives without some crap. True. You know, we get to 40, 50, you know, and beyond, still carrying it, right? And still stuck in that, whatever that thing that was going on then. And what an extraordinary gift to have the opportunity to work through that in a wholesome way,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right? Rather Mm -hmm. than through, say, 18 hours a day of video games, which, you know, is another path that people take right and what an extraordinary gift to give young people a sense of optimism about what their future could be and a, and a reason why you know wow what a great thing because again you know my experience with young people is that you know they get from the day they start high school maybe even earlier than that they get barraged with what are you gonna do when you're gonna run you what, you what are you gonna do 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 and then when they get to university what kind of job are you gonna get what kind of job like it's this constant it's you must Mm -hmm. go to university without any reason why you know what are you going to do with that what are you going to do and who knows right and so i think it's an amazing what a what a lovely exercise and what a what a
2: lot of hard work on your part as well i mean it was a little bit of both like being able to help students just work through some of their stuff and I mean, the only way we were able to do it was for me and my student teacher who I was working with, Brother Gonzalez, who, us having to model it for him and having to, like, again, this is some more of that data that you're talking about, like, right? when I think of the qualitative data that often is ignored and that's just sharing our stories and us sharing our negative turbulences that it took for us to be able to get to these positive spaces and creating an atmosphere within the classroom that was of love, that was of respect, that was of understanding, that was of comfort, that lacked judgment, and being able to have conversations with students that were genuine, that was authentic. Mm -hmm. And we just wanted to make sure kids knew that they were whole because of the reflection that they did. Mm -hmm. And the kid who had the most beautiful life growing up, it's like, dude, you're whole because look at how of a wonderful life you've had. And all the opportunity you've been given for the kid who's just been through so much trauma and dread and just terrible circumstances, which were some of the stories that we heard. Look, you're still here, man. Yeah. You're still here. You're still in class. You're writing a paper. You're doing all this stuff. You have the opportunity to do all these things. If you can overcome what you've done here at a young age, oh my God, the world that you you? have, what can't you do? Moving Mm -hmm. forward, you know things are only going to get better for you if you continue to build and to take what you've learned right and wrong from your past to move forward
0: telling that story William the word that came to my mind was vulnerability mm-hmm. and i hadn't really connected this this point before but you know as i was talking about what what creates true profound learning thinking that being able to be vulnerable in some kind of way allows you to tap into some kind of space that we normally don't access and, and your story about having people explore their experiences I mean you created a safe space for them to be vulnerable and I can only think about the learners that never have that opportunity True. you know you're only going to get get back from them you know the minimum requirements of the assignment or yeah. you know which train makes it to the station first kind of answers you're yeah. never going to get well, what was your experience like? You know, that, that creates a different level. And it seems to me there's some kind of connection between the positive side of positive turbulence and an individual's or a group's ability to be able to, to step into that space of vulnerability. Does that resonate for you in any kind of way?
2: I mean, I think that vulnerability piece is the key. That's the the major, the linchpin or the lever that is going to get students to be able to actually feel and see that the work is worth it and yep. that their vulnerability isn't a sign of weakness, but rather a sign of strength and of them being able to understand that like, you know, you're not the only person who's going through this, right? Like, you know, like mm-hmm. everybody's going through something and it's all some version of whatever it is one of us is going through. Mm-hmm. So like being able to create that type of space, I think is absolutely critical. And I think the only way that it really happens is with an instructor who's willing to be just as vulnerable yeah. with those students because I'm not going to be vulnerable with somebody who I don't see be vulnerable. Yeah, You know what I mean? I'm not going to open up to somebody who is always closed off who I see as somebody who's like, Oh, if I was Mr. Anderson who they knew from eight in the morning until four in the afternoon and that was it, i don't want to share my life with this person who are you You're just another body in the room that's making sure that i answer questions on a piece of paper but when like they know mr anderson where i'm from they know my parents like i've done speaker phone calls with my mom calling in to my classroom to talk to my students about me and like me growing up and like them being able to ask my mom questions like oh what about this with anderson what about yeah. that like my wife has come in to talk to my students. I've had different brothers come and talk to my students. I share with them my successes. I also share with them my failures. I share with them my fears. I share with them the struggles that I have on a day-to-day basis with whatever level of success they see and think that I have. And like I let them know, man, I'm a human being just like you, man. I, I got a hurt feeling. If I get cut, I bleed. I be tired. I, sometimes I want to go home and I don't want to work and I don't. Sometimes the work piles up and I got to stay up until four in the morning, getting it done. Like they know this individual who's in front of them and they're willing to be able to be like, all right, for this guy, I guess I can share my story because he shared his. So I think that vulnerability thing is huge, but it's one that definitely has to be modeled and one that has to be really broached with love first at the forefront of it all love really, really has to be the thing that, like, I'm not asking you to do this because I want you to be a better writer. I'm not asking you to do this because I want you to go to college. I'm not asking you to do this because I want you to get this scholarship. I'm asking you to do this because I love you and I think this is going to help us be better people.
1: Wow. So much courage right there, William. You know, wow. So few people have that kind of courage to just say, hey, I'm just like you. I've got my claws. I'm imperfect. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a message here that goes so far beyond the classroom, right? Yeah. You know, I've got a friend who's who's in a, in a workplace right now where she's being harassed. And if some vulnerability was acceptable there, yeah, you know, I've got another friend who whose strategy right now in her workplace after a big corporate shuffle is just to keep her head below the foxhole. mm mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to dampen our light. We're going to dim who we are so we don't get noticed, so we don't get laid off.
2: Yeah. What? It's brutal. It's It's brutal. It's
1: brutal, right? It's awful. And, you know, classrooms are hard places. (laughs) Teaching is a hard job, boy. And there's lots of, a ton of trade off, right? Like Mm -hmm. every day, every day, there's a compromise you've got to make to get it done. But I love the message of starting with love. Just begin there. Yeah. You know, and and open yourself and be vulnerable to whatever's coming.
2: And support one another. Yeah. And it'll be all right.
1: Yeah, it'll be all right. It it might not work out exactly as you planned, but that's a conversation you and I have had, Rob, so many times. Is that, you know, there's a whole ton of ambiguity mixed into this positive turbulence thing. But if you generate the right kind of energy, good outcomes come.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: And there's some important assumptions and beliefs that are operating underneath all that. that, Mm -hmm. These things that give you the courage, the ability to be vulnerable and the motivation to to disrupt something in order to make it better. Yeah. Because you just can't accept the status quo.
2: No.
1: So for the teachers that are listening, you know, and the the situation isn't that much better here in Canada. I mean, you know, we've got a, a massive teaching shortage in British Columbia right now. You know, I was I was reading on the weekend in the Wall Street Journal that teachers, at least in the states, are leaving their jobs in record numbers. What would, like, what are you going to tell those folks, William? How are you going to convince those teachers to stay for for years? You know, my kids are a little bit older than our yeah. parents. I knew whose whose kids wanted to be teachers. They were actively discouraging that because they're like, oh my god, it's such a terrible job. The pay is shit.
2: You know. Mm-hmm. yeah and i mean i think what we're talking about is like like maybe a two or threefold way to address the problem i think in recruiting and getting more teachers like we we really have to do a better job of changing the narrative of what it means to be a teacher a lot of the people who leave the profession and this is me making a a dangerous assumption so i don't want to put words in anybody's mouth but a lot of people come into the profession not fully understanding what is being asked of them Mm -hmm. and teaching is a service job we serve and we are underpaid for over serving what we do and that's okay i think it's not okay that you know that the pay that some teachers are getting there's a couple of states where Teachers starting pay is like $26,000, $28,000 a year, which is like totally insane for me to think of. Like you're going to entrust somebody to teach your children and they make less than like a Walmart manager. But then that's no disrespect to any Walmart managers out there. So the way we think about the teaching profession has to change. If we can start to see teachers as the professionals that they are of the scientists and historians and literary masters and all of these different, like the real assets that they bring and just being able to understand the art and the science of teaching. I think when kids say, Hey, I want to be a teacher rather than being like, Oh, don't do that. People will be like, what? Hell yes. You want to be a teacher? How can we help you make sure you make that dream a reality? because I know you little Steve, I know you little Jane, you need to be a teacher. You're the type of person that we need to put in front of kids. Let, let's let do that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Rather than telling somebody, nah, don't do that. There's no pain in it. Try to find something that pays you more. So as soon as we get out of that mind state that like people should be working for money rather than working for a passion and, and an ability to serve, I think is going to be a major shift and teacher preparation has to be better, like, Colleges and universities do an okay job at best of preparing teachers for the work. I think that's a whole, teacher preparation, I think, is a whole nother podcast for hours of tape and, and discussion, dissertation, and data to be discussed. But universities and colleges and alternative teaching prep programs have to, have to. They have a moral obligation to do a better job. As far as retaining teachers, I'm kind of at a mixed Feeling for it, I think some of the people who leave probably shouldn't be in it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's one of those things where it's like if you become a fireman or firewoman, I want that person to really be excited about waking up every morning to be a fireman or a firewoman, to be a fire person, mm-hmm. my house on fire, and somebody showing up disgruntled and mad. Right. Like, oh, I can put out another fire. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, <okay>. <laughs> geez, please. You know what I mean? The same for like people who are on the ambulances, the same for people who are doing surgery. Like I don't need my surgeon showing up to surgery disgruntled. You know, I want them to have a passion for it. I want them to have a love and a burning desire for it that regardless Mm -hmm. of the circumstances, they're like, yes, I've dedicated my life to this thing and this is what I'm going to do. For a lot of those people who are leaving, I understand how hard it is to teach. I understand the, the ask that is being asked of these people. And for some people, you know, it's too much. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a problem with that. The ones that stay though, we're sitting back like, okay, well, there's another Mr. And Mrs. Out the door. You gotta try to find a way to fill the space, which I think goes back to that first issue of like what are we doing to like actually recruit? What are we doing to actually prepare? So that when people actually do become teachers, they actually know fully the job that they're getting into. And they're willing to dedicate themselves to it. Could they pay us more? You're goddamn right they could pay us more. (laughs) And would that keep more people in it? It would. You know what I mean? Plain and simple. We look at the way we allocate our money in this country. And education is so low on that totem pole that are we surprised that? record numbers of teachers are leaving we shouldn't be you know if all of a sudden wall street executives pay got cut to what teachers pay was you'd have a lot less people on wall street yeah if doctors pay got cut to what teachers pay was there'd be a whole lot less people becoming doctors you know what i mean so like we got as a society that's us that's not even the teachers and those people who are leaving's fault that's us as a society not valuing the expertise and the professionalism that comes with teaching And people just being fed up and being like, you know what, I'm straight. I can go work in corporate America, make this a more living wage. And it sucks because it hurts kids. And I think it hurts those people's quality of life, especially those people who really wanted to be teachers. Like if I had to leave teaching and take a corporate job where I made more money, would I be happy that I made more money? Absolutely. Would I miss the kids every single day? Absolutely. Would I be happier? Probably not. Yeah. You know what I mean? So jobs just don't give you
0: the opportunity to impact people. And that's, that's tough. I mean, you might, the salary might be higher, but it's a totally different kind of lifestyle and a totally different kind of impact that you're
2: having. I think teachers are one of the, some of the people are a profession full of people chasing immortality in the (laughs) sense that they're like, if I can teach these kids, I'll live through this kid. And then hopefully that kid to teach their kids some of what I taught them. And I'll be gone, but they'll still remember, you know, the things. Like I have teachers that I know are no longer on this earth, but I'll never forget Miss July, who's my fourth grade teacher. About that woman it will impact me forever. I'll never forget Miss Snow. I'll never forget um, Miss Keeler, Miss Delmont. I'll never forget Mr. Roundtree. Those cats are cemented, you know? So like this idea of being able to teach it brings in a very particular fold of people and we just have to do a better job supporting them. Yeah, I totally agree with you.
0: So we use the word turbulator as someone who creates turbulence. It goes in and mixes things up. I met you about a year ago, William, but I heard about you. I saw about you when I was at the Gates foundation in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind, can you tell us a little bit of the story about, your relationship with Gates, how how you ended up with your picture on that wall. And then a little bit of a follow-up, if that's given yeah. you the opportunity to turbulate in
2: any kind of way. Strangely enough, I'd have to credit my mom for raising me right. I was at work one day and saw a lady like carrying in a whole bunch of stuff. And I like was like, oh man, like why are you carrying it? Let me help you out. You know, trying to be the, the gentleman mama would want me to be and got nothing else of it. Probably like a month later, I got an email from the Gage Foundation saying I was invited to uh, ESET Two conference in um, La Jolla, California, like all expense paid for it. And I was like, this is a trick. This is like some email fish <laughs> or something like that. Nobody gives away free stuff. But look more into it. I was like, oh, okay, cool, man. Went, had an amazing time, came back. And after I came back, probably a week after I came back, the lady who, was, who had helped carry stuff in was like, hey did you ever get an email from the Gate Foundation? I was like, yeah, I did. I, I actually just got back from a trip from them. She was like, oh, I recommended you for it because you were so nice that day and you helped me out and they were asking for great teachers and I thought I passed your name along. And I was like, oh, that was really sweet you. Thank you so much. Like, it was an amazing thing. And I went to that first one and was blown away. Was lucky enough to go to a second one in Snowbird, Salt Lake, And there they were recruiting for their TAC, which is the Teacher Advisory Council. And I talked to as many people as I could while I was there to be able to get onto this board. So put my name in the hat, they called, I interviewed, was lucky enough to be accepted to be on their Teacher Advisory Council and worked with the foundation for two years. And just over those two years, I'm going to Seattle and different places all over the country, just helping push some of their different initiatives helping provide feedback to some of the different work that they were doing and just over that time cultivating some relationships with some of the people there telling them about the work that i was doing in denver they were like well hey can we come out and check it out they came checked it out were like oh man this is really great work and i mean for me i was like really this was, you know i just thought it was work and they're like can we film this can we do this and that all that turned into that screen that's out there in the museum, which still is to this day, like a mind blowing thing that even <laughs> exists. But since then, with that, it's just been amazing to be able to just provide some insight to just different places and spaces about education. I like to call it like education mercenary work, where they like call you in, here's the job, we need your insight, Your let us ask us these questions, let's do this work here, and then fly back out type of work in education is kind of based in that. I met so many like crazy good educators there. In particular, my boy, Brandon White, who is a teacher in Rochester, New York. Me and him were able to create this critical pedagogy and an emancipatory pedagogy professional development that I've been able to teach and train with around the country. That's been really awesome. So that experience... More than anything else, let me know that being a positive turbulator, is that that the word you use? A positive turbulator? One was a thing and that it was needed and that it was okay to do it. Like I remember going into teaching thinking, you know, almost to your friend's thought to just like keep my head down, close my door, do my teaching. But being able to work on that national level really showed me like, yo, William, you should say something. You should do something. You should turbulate in a positive way and mm. you're not always going to be right and you have a crap ton to learn, but you also have a crap ton that you can contribute, which I never thought I did. So like, yeah. that was probably the biggest takeaway from that.
1: Thank you so much, William, for your time mm. oh, and generosity yeah. and spending time with us today. You know, for me, these lessons in, in positive turbulence, they go so far beyond the classroom, Yes, right? They're not just about, they're just about, interacting as a human really but I think if we want to have a culture that's innovative have a culture that's riding this future wave that's looking to the future that that will be thriving in the next 20 years mm-hmm. we need to start thinking less about <laughs> this model that was developed for the 1890s yeah. and much yeah. much more about raising students and children that are creative and innovative and, you know, forward thinking and living in their passion, right? And doing, like you say, doing what they really love because I I do not want my surgeon showing up.
2: (laughs) No, really? <laughs> no disgruntled surgeon. No discrital Not another surgery. brain surgery. No, oh. <laughs> no, what? Brain surgery today. I'm just not feeling it. I don't need that. I uh. do not need that.
1: Oh. <laughs> right. So yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I, I love that thought and I'm going to hold that thought. and I'm
0: Absolutely. Gonna
1: apply it to many things.
0: You know, I've got to say, Learning about positive turbulence from Stan years ago, studying it, practicing it in organizational change, writing about it. Honestly, starting this podcast with you, Karen, and William, spending time with you, my learning has now changed. And I'm a student again in a different kind of way. And I I really appreciate that. So thanks. Thanks to you both for doing this. This is just a ton of fun. We're having a yeah,
2: good time with yeah, <laughs> I appreciate you guys 110%, man, yeah. for even the opportunity to come in and, and share even a little piece. Yeah. Well, who knows where everything's going to go? Yeah. yeah, we'll
0: see. <laughs> That's the beauty of it all, right? Crazy optimists like the three of us, right? <laughs> <laughs> this,
2: is this is very, very true.
1: Thank you to AMI, who have nurtured us in developing this podcast, is the source of so many of our guests, and, of course, the founder, Stan Griskevich, is also the author of the original book and, dare I say, the guru of positive turbulence.
0: AMI is a pioneering, nonprofit organization comprised of committed individuals who foster and leverage creativity and innovation in organizations and society. AMI identifies leading-edge innovation, shares experiences, sponsors research, and recognizes innovation and creative processes. Find out more at aminnovation.org. And thank you to Mac Avenue Music Group, our contributing sponsor, for providing our podcast soundtrack, Late Night Sunrise.
1: If you want to find out more about your hosts, Positive Turbulence, our guests, or check out our very cool and very diverse reading list, head over to PositiveTurbulence.com. Until next time, keep the turbulence positive.